Welcome back to the next part of this Truth and Rhythm episode. Be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. Also become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you so much for your interest and support. Enjoy. I am pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership drummer Stanton Moore, a founding member of the fantastic New Orleans-based funk jazz jam band Galactic. With influences like the Meters and the JBs, since 1994, Galactic has released 10 studio albums and established itself as one of this millennium's most authentic funk-oriented groups. A precision act on stage, the band has continued to challenge itself and listeners by incorporating traditional and progressive electronic and rap elements into its musical lexicon. A creatively restless spirit Stanton has embodied his name by always seeking to do more through his rhythmic gifts that has manifested in several solo as well as ongoing and one-off band projects, along with dozens of session calls and countless performances. In 2017, having done instructional books and videos, he established the Stanton Moore Drum Academy. Stanton, how are you doing? Great. Good to see you, Scott. Good to see you, too. Thank you for joining the show. I appreciate it. Absolutely. It's good to be here. Yeah. So uh, are you at home today? Where are you? I am. I'm at home. I'm currently in my office. And you can see, as you commented a little earlier, there's my one of my little practice kits that I keep in here. And it's got quiet heads and quiet cymbals so I can play at any time because now my wife is working from home a lot since the pandemic. So I can sit back there and work out any ideas I might get. And then, you know, I can stay up here and do what I need to do business-wise, email-wise, writing-wise. I write a lot of lessons from my drum academy. And then I can just slip over there and I don't have to worry if she's on a Zoom or anything like that. I can just play on the quiet drums anytime I need to. Got it worked out. Um, so are you in New Orleans proper? Where, where are you located? I am. So... We live in the Garden District, right next to the Lower Garden District. So we are uh, in the Uptown area, and I could walk to Tipitina's if I if I needed to, and I do sometimes. But uh, but yeah, pretty much you know walking distance to downtown, walking distance to Tips, and um, we have a studio that is located in between my house and and Tips. So I go there a lot. And I've got a couple of kits set up at all times there, so I can really lay into stuff if I need to there. And that's also where I film all of my drum academy lessons, and then I can also record there. So I have a few different clients that I'm recording different tracks for. Nice. 
Well, I've been a fan going back to the first Galactic record. And, um, you know, I know you guys gigged a lot before that, too. And uh, Robert uh, has been on the show. I don't know if you knew that, but your partner in rhythm, you know. So, yeah, enjoyed him. And uh, I saw you, the last time I saw you guys was actually uh, right before the pandemic, the One Nation tour with uh, George Clinton. I caught that show in uh, Greensboro since I'm in North Carolina. And, uh, you know, miss seeing you guys ever since then. So hope to see you again soon. Yeah, very cool. And then before that, when I lived in Los Angeles, I got to see your trio at the uh, at the Mint, you know, so that was very cool, too. Yeah, love the Mint. I've done a lot at the Mint over the years, and I had a weekly there on Wednesdays in July, three years in a row. So I was spending some time there and flying in and out of there for the summer festival gigs. But uh, yeah, love the Mint. Yeah, I miss it. I got to tell you, I miss a lot of those clubs out there for sure. But that one's right at the top. Yeah. So Stanton, growing up in New Orleans with, you know, that in your in your blood and uh, that environment. Could you not have gotten into music? I mean, what what drove you to it? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I just. I can remember going to Mardi Gras parades as a kid and. I mean, talking about, you know, starting around eight months old or so, going to Mardi Gras parades and then really being impacted by the drums coming down the street, especially, you know, by the age of three, four, and then by the ages of five and six, just wanting to hit on everything in the house. So, you know, hitting on pots and pans, hitting on Rubbermaid containers, mixing bowls. And so I was just drawn to it because of the energy of the marching bands coming down the street and the Mardi Gras parades. So I just could tell that I wanted to pursue drumming, music, hitting stuff. And my parents let me take piano lessons when I was about seven or eight. And then I started joining the school band and all that around nine or 10 and Got my first kit. I think it was at the age of 12 when I got my first kit. And then from there, it was just, it was just drums every day. And were you like attracted to all genres or were there a couple that you were really, you know, tuned into? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, being that age, you know, at the age of around 14, 15, I started getting into classic rock. All things Jimi Hendrix, Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, Deep Purple, The Who, all kinds of stuff like that. And around that time, I also started going to some of the punk rock shows in New Orleans. And so I was drawn to a lot of that at first. And then around the age of 16, 17, started getting exposed to records by The Meters and John Coltrane and started really kind of, you know, I'd already been into Led Zeppelin. So, you know, to reference the shirt that you're wearing, I was very into John Bonham at an early age, you know, age of teenager. But then around 16, 17, started getting into, into Ziggy released and, and Elvin Jones from hearing the meters and John Coltrane. So to this day, my holy trinity is still really 
Ziggy Mortalese, John Bonham, and Elvin Jones. And I, not necessarily specifically or note-wise, do I try to model my playing after those guys all the time, but those guys are huge influences on me. And I tried to emote, I tried to more emote in the way that those guys do or convey emotional energy in the way that those guys do. Like those three drummers always had a really strong emotional connection to me. So I would, you know, I want to impact people in a way that those three drummers impact me. Mm -hmm. Now, when you picked up a stick for the first time, did you realize that the meters were local? So in a way, just in that, we had this Mardi Gras compilation at the time. And my dad would play that record all the time. And it was vinyl back then. And this, I forget what year it came out, but it was probably the late 70s. And uh, so it was on this record for some of the Professor Longhair tunes and uh, some of the Wild Magnolia tunes and the meters, stuff like Hey Bucky Way. And, um, and so I was hearing that, but I was not necessarily, so I assumed all that music was from New Orleans, but then I was not aware of all the instrumental meter songs and all of the vast body of work that they had created. So in a way, I knew that the music that I was hearing it, at Mardi Gras and all the Mardi Gras tunes were from New Orleans. But then I wasn't aware of the deeper, the deeper catalog that, that these guys had created. And especially all the stuff that they played on from other people. And then how important, how cool that was because of them being from New Orleans and being influential, yes, but then also all of the work that they did with so many other people that was influential. And then it's really deep once you start realizing in the nineties, 20 years after their heyday, all the music of theirs that got sampled for a lot of the hip hop that came out in the nineties. So they were influential on different levels at different points in their career which is so very cool. You know, them being the band that played on records with Robert Palmer or some of the stuff with uh, LaBelle or maybe some of what they did backing up, you know, some of the other artists that came through town and would have them play. So what they did was, sure, they're from New Orleans, but it, it reached so many different different genres, different people, different artists, different communities, different cultures because of what they were doing. And sometimes they might not have even been aware that their music was used on a hip hop tune that wound up becoming, becoming a hit. They might not have even realized that for a couple of years and, and then realized, oh, that's us on that hit. They might owe us a little something on that. <laughs> Who did you first see that kind of blew your mind at a young age? So 
two guys in particular, and both around the same time, both around within a few months of each other, and that would be Johnny Vodakovich and his very unique, very, very interactive and very free, very loose style. And I was just like, wow, I didn't realize you could play the drums in that way. And then right around the same time, I think it was 17 when both of these happened, and then seeing Russell Baptiste, who was just an absolute raw force of nature. And he was playing with, with, with George Porter Jr. and the Meters at that time. So I would go see him often and uh, hang with him. And, you know, I would move his drums and set up his drums. And so Russell just really blew my mind at the age of 17. And then so did Johnny Vodakovich. And two polar opposite types of players. Were any of them, uh, any those guys or any other guys in a similar fashion, uh, sort of mentors at all? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Johnny, for sure. And then, you know, Russell definitely took me under his wing. It would let me follow him around and sit in. And sometimes I was sitting in at, in places where I had no business being, but Russell would vouch for me and be like, he's with me. You know, don't mess with him. So the experience of getting to hear some of that music and sitting in, being put in the hot seat, that really helped me strive to be better than I was at that time. So in completely different ways, I would say that, you know, Johnny and Russell were very nurturing and beyond being influential. Yes. You know, they were, they, they, they were mentoring me in different ways. And sometimes in what I should do and sometimes in what I should not do. Yeah. And that trial by fire, you can't beat that. Yeah. Um, was it mainly their influence or other influences that kind of uh, drove you more towards groove based music as opposed to some of the rock that you mentioned earlier? Yeah. So it was really just the emotional connection, the emotional connection that I felt from the music that I was hearing from Johnny Vodakovich, Russell Batiste, of course, all the meter stuff. Of course, whenever I would see Herlin Riley or Shannon Powell. And of course, at that time, I was able to go out in New Orleans and see Brian Blade, who was just an unbelievable, you know, meteoric development of his talent like i saw him when i was still in high school and he was at loyola and i was just like oh my god like he was light years ahead of me musically and so i remember seeing him when i was still in high school and just being like oh my god this is amazing and then watching him develop over the next couple of years and it was just you know his development Musically, artistically, um, emotionally, and it was just, I mean, it was just like watching a rocket take off, watching him develop. You would see him and then, you know, a week later you'd see him again. And it was just like, he was 
just getting better in quantum leaps from week to week, which is incredible to watch. At what point did you think, uh, you know what, I'm going to make a go of this being my career? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think I was, you know, I think it was, I mean, just starting to play. I mean, I might have been, I don't know, you know, still hadn't had my first drum set yet, maybe. But I was like, I want to be a drummer because, you know, I figured, well, I won't have to have an office job, nothing against office jobs. But I was like, I want to, you know, I want to be able to play drums, travel. I was an altar boy when I was younger. And the, I used to have to wake up for 6.30 mass. So we would have to wake up at like 5 something a.m. So I was like, whatever I do for a job in my life, I don't want to have to wake up early. Now, little did I know that I was going to have to wake up early and catch early flights often. And often after having played late at night the night before. So I, you know, I had reasons I wanted to become a professional drummer. Some of them I did not realize uh, I was going to, you know, have to work really incredibly hard and also sometimes play late and wake up early. So, <laughs> um, but I decided as, you know, when I was pretty young that I wanted to play and play for a living and, and you know, that's what I wanted to do with my life. What was your balance like early on in terms of being, um, you know, just into playing and being sort of a gearhead with it? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I'm not too much of a gearhead. I mean, you know, I love drums and I have lots of drums, but I don't really obsess over the gear too much. You know, I, I get into it a good bit, but I think I have a healthy balance. I mean, some guys, you know, are way, way into the gear aspect of things. And then some guys don't pay attention to the gear at all. So for me, the, the way that I would consider myself, you know, my relationship to gear is more that I want everything functioning. I want everything sounding good. You know, I don't have to have like brand new hardware all the time as long as everything's working, right? And then, um, so I like to make sure that everything is maintained, everything is functioning and everything, nothing's falling apart. And then, you know, some of my buddies, they get up there and they're just all about the music. They're all about the energy of the connection between the music and the individual and the band and the audience. And they don't care if their gear is falling apart, right? But for me, of course, I'm aware of the music, the connection between the individuals and the band, and then that connection with the audience. But I don't want my gear or my kit to be falling apart while I'm making those connections. Because to me, that starts to distract from what you're doing. So, you know, I do put some effort into making sure that everything's working so that it doesn't detract or distract from what I'm trying to do musically. Mm -hmm. um, 
Stan, what was your first time in a studio, like really doing some professional type recording? I would think that that was probably when I recorded a demo with a band I had called Captain Meathead. And it was myself and Scott Guy on, on guitar and Peter Barnes on bass. And Scott Guyon has gone on to become the three-time Jazz Fest poster artist. So for the years 2020, the year that didn't happen, and uh, let's see, the 50th was the 50th anniversary. So he did the 50th and then the next two. So, and... He did a wonderful job on all three of those. And so he was playing guitar and singing in this band. And we went into a studio and, you know, put our money together and went and recorded five or six tunes with our band that we called Captain Meathead at the time. That was my first studio experience. What year do you think that was? That was probably 1990, 89 or 90. Wow, it's going way back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was either 89 or 90. And when were the first uh, stirrings of what would turn into Galactic? Yeah, so I was in the Loyola jazz department, right? And I was playing drums, trying to get my degree. And there was a guitar player named Rob Gowan, and he was in that department as well. And so sometimes we just wanted to blow off steam. And so I said, hey, man, I've met this bass player who's really cool. He loves meters and P-Funk and James Brown. Do you want to get together and come jam at my house? So that bass player was Robert Mercurio. And so that was 1992. And then I bumped into Robert Mercurio, I believe at Tipitina's shortly thereafter. And he said, hey, this is my friend Jeff. And he plays guitar in that band I was telling you about. We have a band. So they had a band together since they were 12 years old. They grew up down the street from each other and knew each other since the second grade. And they they grew up down the street in Chevy Chase, Maryland. They moved to New Orleans and they were trying out some different drummers, but they had a band called Galactic Prophylactic. And they asked me when I met them, and I believe at Tips, when I bumped into Robert, he said, man, do you, 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 we know you're busy. You're probably too busy. Because I was already playing gigs with a bunch of different bands and playing on the casinos and stuff like that. And um, the casino riverboats. And so Robert said, you might be too busy, but do you know any drummers who might want to come play some funk with us? I said, well, I want to play funk. And so I went and did some rehearsals at their house on Magazine Street in late 1992. And then in 93, we started playing gigs together as Galactic Prophylactic. 
you have any specific memories about like the early stage act that you guys had? Oh yeah. We had a very energetic singer by the name of Chris, Chris Lane and Chris Lane is now in comedy and he's, he's, you know, he's wonderful. He's brilliant. He's funny. And so he would, you know, jump all over the stage and he was super energetic, but, uh, you know, he would tell you himself, he was not much of a vocalist and was more of a front man. And we had decided we wanted to kind of focus more on, you know, trying to get a little more serious with what we were doing. So we kind of regrouped a little bit and then came back together in, I believe, 95. We recorded a record in 95 and released it in 96 and started touring, played our first jazz fest and started touring as Galactic. That's right. That's the record, Cooling Off. And it came off in night, came out in 96. And we started touring it in 96, played our first jazz fest. And that first year we played, I don't know, in between, you know, we played a whole bunch of gigs and then started averaging, you know, I think there was one year we did close to 200 gigs and it started averaging, you know, 150 gigs for years. But over, up until COVID, there was a 25 year run that averaged about a hundred gigs a year for 25 years. Wow. <laughs> Thousands of gigs. Literally. Wow. Uh, what, what did you feel like um, the aspirations or ambition was of the group and yourself back then? Did you think, you know, you want to get famous at all? You just want to play what feels good. You just want to make enough to make an okay living. What were your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, for me, I decided around the age of 17 and told my buddy Scott Guy on that I wanted to be one of the best drummers I could possibly be, right? Um, and hopefully become one of the best drummers in the world and strive to do that. And so for me, I... I worked towards that and, you know, practiced a lot and studied with some great teachers with, you know, Johnny Fedakovich, hung out a lot with Russell Batiste. I had already studied with Marty Hurley and got my rudimental stuff together. And then, you know, studied with uh, with Herlin Riley a little and then just started getting together with as many great drummers as I could and just really trying to to get better by constantly learning, right? And then eventually wound up, after we've been touring for a long time, I would go take lessons with Kenny Washington, great jazz drummer in New York. And so I was just always trying to get better and always trying to improve. And then with the, you know, with Galactic, with the band, of course, you know, some of our goals were we wanted to play larger venues and eventually get to where we could headline Red Rocks, which we did. We've played Red Rocks many, many times, but we've gotten to where we've headlined it a couple of times. And that was, you know, really wonderful, you know, and of course put out 
some of the best records that we can. And then, you know, some of the guys admittedly would want to play with the band and and not have people know who they are. <laughs> and, you know, they would admit that they, fame is not something that they want to pursue. Um, whereas, you know, for me, of course, I want to be well known as the best drummer that I can possibly be, you know? And, but uh, I realized that, you know, not everybody in the band has the same aspirations. So as you went along in your journey with Galactic, um, I don't know if you had to put like a percentage on it with that first record in the mid nineties, you know, where was your skill level and your accomplishment behind the kit? Would you say? compared to where it got five or 10 years from then? Yeah, uh, pretty low. <laughs> I mean, you know, I would like to think that I've improved a great deal from that first, from our first efforts. And what I'm really focused on is that, you know, the next 10 years, you know, I made, I made 51. So I, you know, now I'm going to my studio and trying to practice two and three hours at a time multiple times a week so I'm, i want to be even better by the time i'm 60 something right so that's what i'm focused on is trying to be the best that i possibly can be by the time i'm in my 60s <laughs> so you know working on all of that right now and um and really enjoying it you know and i feel like i'm, I'm proud of where we've been able to get with the business side of things you know, I'm proud of what we've accomplished with being able to pool our resources and and become the current caretakers of Tipitinas. And, you know, really, I want to be proud of where I'm at musically 10 years from now, you know. And so, you know, I, I am proud of some, uh, some of the music that we've been able to create. And then I want to be even prouder of where I'm at in 10 years. Well, I was very impressed with some of the progression Galactic just did as a band. I mean, um, you guys pushed the envelope in a lot of ways. And I know that it alienated maybe some of the core, but I mean, Ruckus is like one of my favorites. And you guys definitely had a big departure on that, but it worked. It was cool stuff, you know? Thank you. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I, I really appreciate you saying that. And, I don't think it's healthy for a band to stay locked in to one one artistic vision. You know, I think that it was healthy for us to grow and to challenge ourselves and to take chances, you know, to take chances, take risks, you know, and you know, you mentioned that record, and then, you know, I think we may have alienated some more people with from the corners of the block. But then some people love that record, you know, and and um, we really had a great time touring that record, and you know, playing with Charlie Tuna and Boots Riley and Lyrics Born. We toured a lot with those guys, and you know, I know because people told us, you know, that it was a little bit too much of a left turn for them. But then for some people, they really loved it. 
And now, you know, we might get Charlie Tuna as a guest or Lyrics Born as a guest or Boots Riley as a guest. And, you know, we don't have to do it like a whole set of it or we don't have to do it for months on end. But we learned so much and we developed so much as a band from doing that record and then, you know, doing all the records that we've done, you know, and getting to work with artists like Alan Tucson and Irma Thomas and, you know, um, Mavis Staples and Macy Gray, you know, I mean, Corey Glover, you know, Cyril and Evel. It's like we've been very fortunate, very blessed and very, uh, you know, rich, really, in the artists that we've been able to work with, you know. And there's a huge amount of learning that we've been able to do by working with some of these artists. And, you know, if we had decided, oh, we're just going to be an instrumental funk band and we're just going to do this, right, then I don't think we would have learned or grown as much as we have. Speaking a little bit more to that, Stanton, how would you describe the chemistry or dynamic among the members within Galactic? You know, when you're brainstorming creatively for something, you know, one of these kind of projects, you know, what's a give and take like and how do you like bring something to fruition together? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And what, what's really cool is that, you know, you've got guys in the band like Ben Elman. Ben is always seeking out new music and seeking out new artists and sometimes bringing that back to us for us to check out. And, you know, he was really checking out the New Orleans Bounce stuff and checking out Big Frida and Katie Red and, you know, brought them to us. And then we, you know, we did songs with, with Cheeky Black and Katie Red and Big Frida. And that really helped us go in directions that we would have never gone in, you know? Um, and then Ben will also, you know, he'll be into some Balkan brass band stuff you know, and bring that to us. And we wind up doing, you know, some Balkan-influenced funk, <laughs> where the horn melodies are obviously coming from Eastern European-influenced uh, music, right? And so, you know, it's just specifically some of the stuff that, that Ben will bring in. I might be trying to bring in different influences from different things that I've done and then coming up with different grooves and then throwing that into what we do, you know? So we all kind of bring in different elements from different areas and then could, you know, bring that in to kind of help, help us move in directions that we may have not been headed in before. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, you and Robert have been playing together so long, you know, what's it like when you guys lock in and, and hit that pocket, you know? Yeah, it's great. I mean, groove-wise, when Robert and I play together and it's locked because we've been playing together for so long, you know, it's very comfortable, right? So, and we just know each other so well, you know? And then there are times sometimes where, 
you know, one of us might be feeling something in a slightly different place. And then we'll talk about it, you know, and then we'll work on it to get it to where, to where it feels where we're locked. And we're, we're really always trying, trying to accomplish that, that lock where especially him and I are just really super, you know, together. And if we feel like, you know, if we come off stage and we're like, yeah, that one didn't really quite sit right. And then we talk about how we can do that, you know? So, you know, just for anybody who might be interested, you know, what I do before we start a tune is I sing a part of that tune and it might be the chorus or it might be one specific vocal part at the end of the verse. It depends, you know, on the song or it might be a horn line if it's a, if it's an instrumental thing. And then I may also, you know, sometimes I have a metronome on my left and I used to sometimes play to a click, but now we don't play the click at all. And then I may look at the blinking light of the metronome while I'm singing the that specific part of the tune that I just said. And then I don't look at it. And then I go off of the feel of what I'm singing. But I might look at that blinking light to make sure that it's in the ballpark. And then sometimes we might want to play something a little with a little bit more of an edge. Sometimes we want, might want to lay it back a little bit. But I try not to get married to that click. I, I try to go more off of what I'm feeling musically based off of where I'm singing that me melody or where I'm singing that that horn line or that one hook in the in the chorus. And I might use that blinking light just to make sure that, okay, yeah, this is where it should be. Because if you're using a couple of reference points, singing the melody or the horn line, and looking at that blinking light. And sometimes I'll look at somebody, I'll know Robert's tapping something out, and I'll look at where he's tapping it out. And if we start something, and I look at Jelly, and I can tell she wants it to sit a little bit, I might just bring it back just a little bit. And you want to get it to where these adjustments are imperceivable to the audience. But there is so, it, there's, it's such fine tuning that it's almost imperceivable. Yeah, except for little tweaks like that can make so much difference in how you really feel it. Oh, yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. And, you know, if, if something's a little too quick and you can tell that the vocalist wishes that it was, you know, held back and then it could, you know, it could not be as good as it could be that day. So, you know, getting the right tempo, getting the right feel, getting the right groove, finding the right pocket for the tune is very important to me. And we, we talk about in funk, of course, how, you know, the, the silence and the gaps are as important as anything else. Um, oh yeah. For and you the space in between the notes is yeah. what creates the pocket and creates the groove. So for you, you know, when you're creating that, how do you, how in need is it versus intellectual to augment, you know, what you're doing with the pocket, you know, pulling it this way or that way? 
Yeah. And what was the word you, how innate? Innate versus intellectualized. Yeah. You want to get it to a point where it's innate, where it it's feel, you know? And, and then you also, just through repetition, you want to get it to where when you start a tune, even if you're, you know, sometimes we may have flown early that morning. We may have had a 6 a.m. flight, which means you've got to wake up around 3 a.m. And then we've been traveling, you know, you might have to fly from New Orleans, have a layover somewhere, maybe Dallas or Denver, and then you land in Portland, and then you drive two hours to the festival, right? This happens all the time. And then the tempos then, after you've been traveling for eight, ten hours, whatever it is, and you haven't even checked into your hotel and you're on stage, the tempos then are going to be different than, you know, if you fly in somewhere the day before, have everybody's got a full night to sleep, and then you wake up, and then all you got to do is drive 10 minutes to the festival site, and then everybody's been able to have coffee, and you're playing at 6 p.m. as opposed to midnight. So the tempos are going to be different, and so you want it to be based off of how you're feeling, and then hopefully innately you can tune into how everybody else is feeling. Too, and you want to feel that as much as you can as a cohesive unit that is also aware of where the vocalist is feeling it. Because if you know, if we're in altitude and you try to count something off, you know, and the vocalist is having trouble taking breaths in between the lines of the verse. That's gonna be that's gonna be no bueno, you know. So you got to be aware of that too. So I try to watch, you know, Jelly like a hawk, and Jelly will be like, you know, she might look back and be like, you know, and she'll do it, you know, behind her back, just like that, right? To where you won't even see it, like, just like that, not like, oh, you know, just she'll be like that, just a hair. To where I might just back it up to say here. And then Ivan Neville playing with Dragon Smoke, he does this thing where he rolls his, his you know, it's like, okay, but well, is your where you're feeling the tempo here, two, three, four, or here? You know, that and <laughs> so you also gotta watch his foot. And then you might start to think, and you're like, you just you nailed the tempo where he's at. But then he starts singing and he's like, he realizes, no, he needs it to be back a little bit. And that doesn't mean that I didn't nail where he was. It means that he started singing it and he realized he needs more space to take breaths. Right. And so, you know, this, all this stuff comes from experience, you know, and, but for me, if I'm playing the galactic, I'm looking this way watching Jelly, and she'll turn around, you know, when she can, and come visit me, you know, and be like, oh, it feels great, it's awesome. You know, if it's a solo or an instrumental part in a tune. And then, but with Ivan, he's behind the, the organ. So 
he can't come to me. So I really got to be watching that shoulder <laughs> and watching him tap his foot because I can't go to him and he can't come to me. So it's a different thing. But in both situations, I'm watching the singer. I'm watching the vocalist like a hawk. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.